Today is uh, April 1st, 2018. It is Resurrection Sunday. And the title of today's sermon is Life from Death. You know, it's amazing that you can read all the studies that you want. You can look around and see what the culture is. And it's, we're becoming more and more of a de-churched society. If you look at all of the, uh, all of the um, research that you want to look at, people are turning away from church by the droves. The millennials, the young folks, are turning away from the churches in amazing amounts. I would like to attribute that to, it could be many things, but one of the things that I think is they see a church that has no power. They see people talking about a resurrected savior, but in their minds, he's still on a cross somewhere. True. The fact is, is there is no power. People are talking about religion and there's nothing to support it. There's nothing to make you think that it's actually real. So a generation that's now coming saying, yeah, we're not willing to play. We're not going to pretend like there's something there when there's not. My parents who dress up nice on an Easter Sunday, but act like hellions on the Saturday night. That there's no difference between what I see in my parents who say they're Christians and anybody else that I work with who says I'm a heathen and I know it and I like it. How is there not a distinction amongst the people of God? You're at a place today where you're going to get to experience. You have experienced just a little bit of it. But I believe that God has more for us to actually experience the power of God. And if you're here today, and you actually have a tender heart, I believe that the Lord will meet you and he will demonstrate his power to you. He's not going to demonstrate a religious feel to you. He's not going to demonstrate some just sermon or series of things that are before you. He's going to actually show himself real to you if you care at all to turn your heart towards him. He will demonstrate. He will prove it to you. He is the one who always brings life from death. Come on, everybody say that with me. Say life Life. from death. From death. This is the king that we serve. Turn with me to Exodus chapter 12. Exodus chapter 12. As as we were considering where to go today, and by the way, uh, this is my first Easter service ever to do it with someone, but I figure this is who we really are as a church. There's no single great sage from a stage, a single man that we're asking you all to follow. We're saying that the Lord is the only one that we need to follow and we're but his servants. Puts it in a different place. You can't put us in a different category because we are just men. We're men who've been empowered by the Lord to be with you today. But if he will use us, then surely he can use you as well. By the time we're done, we're going to eviscerate every excuse. We're going to make sure that you contemplate your heart before the Lord. And as we were considering this this morning, we had to begin the way most Bible sermons do. If you think about Stephen, if you think about Paul, where does he begin? He begins at the beginning of the matter. He goes to the law, the book of the law, and we're going to look at Exodus chapter 12. Turn to Exodus 12 and say there when you are there. Let's start in verse 3. It says this, tell the whole community of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. One for each household. You know, the next few verses tell them if, if your household is kind of small, if it's just you by yourself, then you can get with a neighbor. The, the Christianity, the gospel that God is presenting to us here is not exclusive. It's actually inclusive. But we always have to yield ourselves to the way that he says to do it. See, what people want to say now is, man, we, we, we teach the cross plus nothing. What does that mean? That means they want to have forgiveness before they ever ask for repentance. That means they want God. They don't really have to repent because God has kind of done it all. Well, he's done it all, but you have to follow it in the way that he's prescribed. He's prescribing a very, very specific way for his people. And if they don't follow the way, then they miss out on the blessing that's there. I want to encourage every single person in this room. If you think that you can follow Christ any way you want, you've been sorely mistaken. That is the religious spirit that I'm talking to you about this present in our world. You can do it any way you want. You can decide when you want to come to the Lord. I didn't, we do not preach that here at all. If the Lord is working on your heart, and by the end of this sermon, he is working on your heart, you don't know if he's going to give you another shot at it. We have to take advantage and do it the way that he's saying. He says, on the 10th day of the month, not the 9th, not the 11th, on the 10th day, you get a lamb and you bring it into your household. Verse 6, take care of that lamb until the 14th day of the month. Tenth day to the fourteenth day, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter the animal at twilight. Slaughter them at twilight. 
Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and the tops of the door frames of the house where they eat the lambs. Anybody ever found a stray animal out in the... Taking a stray animal into your home? Anybody still have that animal? <laughs> right? God is saying for the people, I want you to go find a lamb. I want you to work on it. I want you to bring it into your home and feed it. I want you to look for, over it. I want you to examine him. I want you to take care of him. Um, what would that do... Anybody ever brought a little kid to go uh, puppy shopping? Yeah, you should, why would you ever do that? Because <laughs> you'll come home with a puppy, right? This is what it's supposed to be doing. You're supposed to take the lamb into your home because it's designed for you to build an affection for the animal. You take care of him. You pet him. You feed him. The kids start playing with him. You name him. And four days later, from the 10th to the 14th, what happens? Then on that fourth, on the 14th day, you take the animal and the father has to take the animal and sacrifice it at twilight. There's no watch. They're looking and as the sun is going down, man, it's twilight. Now is the time. Why? Why would God do that? Is he being cruel? No, he's trying to teach people a very, very direct lesson. That when we sin, when we have things that are wrong in our life, it always costs a life. Your sin costs a life. It's either going to cost yours or you're going to trust in the sacrifice that the Lord has made, but it is going to cost somebody something. Man, there are sermons that have been going on for years. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. It'll make you pay more than you thought you could. And eventually it will bury you. You will be buried underneath your sin. So God is trying to teach his people. And by the way, This is Exodus 12 at the beginning. Is this before or after they've actually left Egypt? This is before. Wouldn't you think about it after you cross the Red Sea? Then you would look back and he'd say, now you start this. He's starting the meal. He's starting the lesson before they leave. Take it in. Take care of it. I've got a purpose for you. I've got something, and if you will follow my plan, you may not know why I'm doing it yet, but I'm doing it for a reason. Because this sacrifice is going to be the very thing that saves you. And it's before they left Egypt. It is what inaugurated them to leave Egypt. Look at verse 8. The same night, they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Our Aswan team, our pastor, our elder... Our disciples that are overseas right now are having this kind of a meal as we speak. They're having roasted lamb. They're having bitter herbs. They're having bread made without yeast, as it describes here in Exodus 12. Amazing. The people of God have been doing it the way he said for thousands of years now. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over a fire. Come on, barbecue. Where are you at? Head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any until morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. Why? You can't have anything left over. You've got to understand that this sacrifice is complete. There's, this is not, you get to understand, you get to partake of the sacrifice a little bit, and then you're going to keep it and finish it off when you decide you're going to finish it off. Today, in fact, is the day of salvation. Amen. You don't get to choose that. We are so Americanized. Have it your way. This is not Burger King. You cannot have it your way. You have to do it the way that he prescribes. But if you do, there's life from the dead. No leftovers. They've got to eat it in haste. Look at verse 12. On the same night, on that same night, which same night? The one that you just got done with your meal. I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. Man, we have heard some incredible teaching on God judging the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. That's the name of the festival, Passover. Pesach. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. God is always one who plans and has a plan for your escape. Come on, don't think if you're being tempted right now to do something wrong that God hasn't made a plan for your escape because he surely has. And he's demonstrating it here in Passover. And by the way, 
when we're talking Passover, um, Passover, when you see it in the word of God, it can mean the meal. It can mean the day. Or it can mean any one of the next few days. Turn to Leviticus chapter 23. I know many of you know this. But I wanted to set some things as groundwork for us today. We have guests. We have young people. This is the basis for what Passover, what Americanized has been called Easter, is all about. These are three feasts that are actually together. Passover the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and the Feast of first fruits. Passover, Unleavened Bread, and first fruits. It's a little bit hard for us to understand sometimes. Why? Because we don't live in the culture. Let me help you understand it. Uh, if I say Christmas, you know that there's a day. If you're uh, of different cultures, you might find Christmas Eve more important than Christmas Day. But when we say Christmas, we're getting all of that. If you're a student, you might say Christmas and mean the two weeks between a little bit before Christmas until you get back in school. Some of us mean Christmas time from anything after you finish eating the turkey at Thanksgiving. We say Christmas. It's Christmas time. Yes, yeah, December 6th. Oh, it's Christmas time. Right? Now, we have a lot of flexibility in this. When the Jews are talking about Passover... They understand that it can mean a meal or the day or these, this week-long festival. And take a look in Leviticus 23. Let's look at verse 4. Are you there? there? These are the Lord's appointed feasts, the sacred assemblies you are to proclaim at their appointed times. The Lord's Passover begins at twilight on the 14th day of the first month. Pretty clear, huh? It's like Christmas, December 25th. It doesn't matter what day it lands on. It's the date that matters to them. Right? On the 15th day of the month, the Lord's Feast of Unleavened Bread begins. For seven days you must eat bread made without yeast. Verse 9, the Lord said to Moses, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When you enter the land I'm going to give you and you reap its harvest, bring to the priest a sheaf of the first grain of your harvest. He is to wave the sheaf before the Lord so that it will be accepted on your behalf. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to come with an offering that says, this is the first thing that has been produced in my life and I want to give it back to you, Lord. I want to wave it before you and say, this is yours. There's more to come. There's more after this. There's going to be some that I can get, that I can find what I need in my provision. But this part, the first is yours, Lord. And we're going to give it to you. It's a lasting ordinance. It's a requirement. Let's all turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. Man, oh man. It really blows my mind that our team is having this meal as we're talking about it here. It's almost like God is in control or something. In Luke 22, we fast forwarded thousands of years. Some 1600 years or so, 15 or 1600 years, we fast forwarded from reading about it in Exodus to here in Luke. Verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, called the Passover, you see how they're using it interchangeably here, was approaching. The chief priests and the teachers of the law were looking for some way to get rid of Jesus. Come on now. Wow. Getting rid of Jesus. For they were afraid of the people. Then Satan entered Judas. It's the only time in the word that I know about that it says that Satan entered someone called Iscariot, one of the twelve. And Judas went to the chief priests and the officers of the temple guard and discussed with them how he might betray Jesus. Wow. They were delighted and agreed to give him money. Isn't that amazing? They were delighted. Wait, you want to sell out Jesus? That makes my day. Wow, what a wicked, wicked thing. Doesn't our society do that? When a man of God actually falls, when someone gets tripped up, isn't there a joy that people can <laughs> Come on, we're going to roast that guy. We didn't like him to begin with, but now that he's messed up, that's all we're going to talk about. It's the same spirit that these men had. Let's take a look at verse 7. Then came the day of unleavened bread, on which the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. So, because we know, and we just read in Exodus and Leviticus, we know that this is actually the 14th of Nisan. 
the day the Passover lamb had to be sacrificed. Jesus sent Peter and John saying, go and make preparations for us to eat the Passover. It sets our time frame. You know what had happened just a few days before? Jesus enters into the town and they're crying out to him. They're laying palm branches in front of them and they're saying, Hosanna, Hosanna. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Why don't you come on into our town? Because you know what day it is? It's the 10th of the month. Come on into our town. We're going to watch you. We're going to see how you interact with people. We're going to evaluate you and find that you're spotless. And here we are getting ready for the sacrifice of the lamb. Verse 14. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table. Man, I don't even have time to talk on the Seder meal, the Passover meal. You know why they reclined? Because when you were a slave in Egypt, you didn't recline to eat. You had to eat standing up, waiting on your master to get done. When you got to recline at a meal, it was a sign of a freed person. One that is no longer wrapped in grave clothes. One that has been completely set free. And so they're reclining at the table with Jesus. He said to them, I have eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom. Are you telling me that the Passover was designed to teach them more than how to eat a meal? Yeah. Sometimes as pastors, we try to make, we, we can make things difficult. I hope that's not what I'm doing today. I hope I'm showing you some basic things that are in scripture. You know what the people of God did? They find the repetition. The Lord said, you're going to have some feasts and you're going to have to do this every year, every single year, exactly the same way, exactly the same way for tens, hundreds, thousands of years. I want you to do it the same way. I want you to do it the same way over and over and over again. There's something about us just being faithful with what God has given us. It teaches us more than we can imagine. It prepares us for what he's doing. Look at verse 17. After taking the cup, he gave thanks and said, take this and divide it among you. This cup of wine. For I tell you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom comes. And then he took bread, gave thanks and broke it. And he gave it to them saying, this is my body given for you. We have communion elements today. Lord giving us grace, we're going to get to a point where we're going to conclude our time today with communion. We're taking a small bit of unleavened bread and a small cup of either juice or wine. In the Bible, it was clearly wine. We've given you options today lest you have a conscience that, that doesn't allow you to do one or the other. We've made it, we don't want to get tripped up on the wine and the juice part. We're reminding ourselves, we're trying to identify with this, not get caught up on technicalities. But what they were doing was having a meal together that lasted for hours. Our team that's having a meal right now, they probably started at 9 or 9.30 our time, and they might can be, still be in the meal part when we're done with service today. It's an amazing thing. But here at communion, they're having communion. They're having a meal together. They're having reconciliation. They're having fellowship in a way that says, I am now right with the Lord, and I am now right with you. Let's eat. At this communion, at this meal, Jesus is saying and telling them about the betrayer and the betrayal that is to come. You know what his disciples start doing after that? They kind of go, hey, is it me? I wonder if it's me. And then they start arguing about who's the best in the kingdom. <laughs> wait, wait, just, just, I know that's them, right? What about us? How many times have we come to a service, we've heard something in it, and it touched our heart, it moved us on the inside, and then not long after, we're back and going, man, how, you know, if we we're going to sing a song, it'd be how great I am. We're thinking back myopically about our own life, and that's not at all what was supposed to have happened here. After Passover is the Feast of Unleavened Bread. You know why? Because we are supposed to keep in mind, if you had the death angel pass over you because you were covered by the blood, but you did not get rid of all the leaven in your home before you left, before you exited, you know what the Word of God says? You should be cut off from God's people. Passover. Woo! Put the blood on the doorpost so that you can live and not die. And then there's another requirement after that. If we think in the room that we can raise a hand, that we can say a singular prayer and be done with this because we got under the blood, then you've missed the clear instruction of Scripture that says there has to be 
a ongoing repentance after that. That's what the Feast of Unleavened Bread was to teach them. There's a moment of salvation, but it's a process to be sanctified as you go forward. Let's talk about that. Whenever I say life, life from death. You know, within Passover alone, what you see is that a lamb is being slaughtered. Death is being put upon this lamb so that the firstborn of every household that participated in that blood of the lamb could receive life. That God's aim and his goal the entire time is that you would have life from death. Life from death. Then if you're proceeding through the first three feasts, that's Passover, unleavened bread like Pastor Wade just mentioned, and then first fruits, a sign of life coming from death. Amen. Everybody turn to Matthew chapter 3 verse 2. You know, when Pastor Wade and I were sitting yesterday and just praying, trying to hear from the Lord about what is it that LCM needs to be fed, needs from the heavens for a resurrection service. We had lots of ideas. There's more scriptures than you can shake a stick at. But what we settled in on is not not to even deviate one inch from who we are in LCM. And who we are in LCM, or Life Changing Ministries, is that we are ambassadors of the King of Kings that brings a gospel message that transforms people. Amen. It changes people. What began in Eric's uh, uh, salvation experience of him crying out and saying, Lord, change me has been the foundational element of what this church has been built on. And we've all experienced that exact same thing. That before we ever get to the power of God, we first have to start with repentance unto God. Amen? Amen. Matthew 3, 2. In saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. This is John the Baptist. He is coming out of the gates, proclaiming, the way of the Lord, um, opening up everyone's hearts and minds and ears so that Jesus could then follow after him and preach who he was as the Messiah. And the first thing he began to preach was repent. Well, let's look at somebody else. Turn to Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Say, there when you are there. There. From that time on, Jesus began to preach. Say it with me. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near. You know, immediately after his trial in the desert, prior to his calling disciples, Jesus began to preach a message of repentance. Come on, if there's a way to win friends and influence people, (laughs) like the famous book, Zig Ziglar, right? How do you you build a strong and, and large church? We used to be asked that a lot. Well, until they found out exactly how many people we had in our church. (laughs) But basically, how do you start a church? Well, let's look at the forerunners of who began to plant churches. What was the message that they preached? Repent. Repentance. Repentance precedes power so that life can come out of death. Let's go to Acts chapter 8. Peter answered, may your money perish with you. Yeah, buddy. Because you thought you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of this wickedness and pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. You know, Peter's preaching to converts who have yet to completely circumcise their hearts. And when someone sees the power of God on display, the first thing that they want to do is purchase it for their own control. You know, in the early years when we were first spirit filled, We had left the Baptist church. 
We're going to a spirit-filled church. We visited other spirit-filled churches. You know who we saw inside of the spirit-filled services, the churches that we visited? The leaders that we once followed in the Baptist church. And we saw them sitting in the very back with their pens and paper, and they were taking notes. And everything that they were were documenting, in fact, I remember that very service, certain things that the Spirit-filled church did, we saw them do or heard of them doing uh, within a month afterwards. But it was without the power of God. And what they were trying to do is use their finances to capture the power of God. But one thing they left out of every bit of it was repentance. They left out the realities of the gifts of the spirit and therefore the power of God. And they were just trying to capture the entertaining value of the presence and resurrection power of God so that they could bring glory to their own structure and system. Well, that's them. Big, bad them, right? Well, part of this is evaluating our own heart. What do we try to do in our own strength? Money may be one facet of it, but what do we try to do in our own strength to bypass repentance and get to the power of God? You know, last Wednesday, we preached a message about being poured out. What are you holding in reserve? What are you withholding from God and sacrifice and that you should be tumped over and completely open to the full flowing of his spirit? Nothing left in reserve. And what you should be doing is looking at this scripture and asking the Lord, where is it that I need to complete my repentance? Amen. Turn to Revelation chapter two with us. Repentance isn't just turning from something. It's turning to something. If you repent and you just turn away from something, but you don't turn to something, what's going to happen is you'll fall back into that habit again. And what, what that means is you never really repented. Boy, it's an interesting thing when you're talking to somebody in a store out and about and you start talking to them and you start talking to them about sin and the consequence of sin. They're like, yeah, I like my sin. The reason I don't want to go to church with you is because I like the way my life is. Wow. No, no wonder it doesn't, it's not the right perspective for us to have to ask you to add Jesus to your life, you know, amongst everything, because he's going to make your life better. Wow. That's sure. You're going to give me something that makes my life better. Fantastic. Yeah. The gospel says you have to stop because you're in death and you have to be transformed and come into life. You have to repent. You cannot keep going your direction and have him join you. You have to stop what you're doing because he's drawing you by his spirit and change everything about you. You have to be willing to lay it all down. And some people, the truth is, they're not worthy of salvation. They're not ready for it yet because they're not ready to lay anything down. We don't help them by forcing them to say a prayer when they're not laying anything down. Because they're not repenting yet. If you're in this room, the opportunity that's going to be provided for you is to say, repent for the kingdom of heaven is near. You have to stop what you're doing and change. We're not asking you to add Christ to you like you would add a workout plan, like you would add a different diet. We're saying stop everything about you and your death march and come to life because of him. That's why he died on the cross. You think he died on the cross to come and add something to your life? He came to bring you life. He came to transform your life. Amen. My God, why do we think we can do something less and say, brother, we're just preaching the cross. You are not. If there's not repentance there, then you haven't gotten to it. Revelation chapter two, pastor brought out John the Baptist. John the Baptist was preaching to everybody, the lowly, the meek, the high, those in authority. Jesus Christ preaching to everybody. You know where he was in Matthew 4? Around a little fishing village just north of Galilee. Preaching to the most down and outers that you can find. Tough people who work and fish. Before he called his disciples to be with him, he's preaching repentance. Man, Revelation 2, we see a picture of Jesus Christ himself through the apostle John 
speaking to one of his own churches. And what does it say in verse 4? Yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. You know who repentance is for? It's for everybody. If you're here and you are far from God, our message to you today is repent that you might experience his life. If you have been raised from the dead, if he has called your name and you've come out of the grave, but you still have grave clothes on, our message to you today is repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That you might live. My goodness. He's talking to one of his churches and say, yeah, you remember what you used to do? You better repent and get back to it. Remember the height from which you've fallen? This is not an unbeliever. These are his people. Every one of us in this room, is, it is demanded from the heavens that we repent. That we turn from our own ways and follow his ways. Look just a few verses later. In verse um, 16. We're talking to a different church, but it's still his people. The church at Pergamum. Verse 16 says, repent. Otherwise, I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. What is that saying? These people had not yielded in the face of martyrdom. People were getting killed in their hometown and they didn't back down. But you know what they did? They held on to teachings that weren't from the scripture. They held on to the teaching of Balaam that had idolatry and sexual immorality in it. They held on to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And Jesus himself is saying, if you don't repent... When I come and bust them up, you better be careful lest you get harmed and grouped in with the wrong set of people. And they were willing to, they were willing to die for their faith, but they were holding on to bad teachings. What about us in this place? None of us are excused. None of us are exempt from having to repent today. Let's look at Acts chapter two. Come on. Talking about repent. How can you miss this one? Acts chapter two, verse 38 and 39. Are y'all with me? If you've been in church before, you've heard the idea of repent. I don't care if you've heard the idea if you haven't repented. For church here, for our family, for you, my brothers and sisters, this message is for you too. It's for the lost in our midst. Yes, it is. But it is for you today. Look at Acts 2.38. Peter replied, repent and be baptized. Every one of you. Don't we usually think about that for the baptism part? Everybody should be baptized in water. Amen, you should. Everybody should repent. Yep, I know when I come into the kingdom, I should repent. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. The reason that we repent, the reason that we fight so hard is because it says to repent and be baptized. We've got to have that resurrection power at work in us. Repentance and baptism are the foundation of Christianity. If you don't want to repent, then you're not going to be a part of the kingdom. Not because I'm being judgmental, but because the scripture clearly says this is how you enter in. This, this is the prescribed way that you must follow. How about you today? Are you following the prescribed way? My brothers and my family here, are you following the prescribed way? Guests, visitors, friends, enemies, are you following the prescribed way today? Because if you are, then you have an opportunity to have a gift given from God himself that's the Holy Spirit. This promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God We'll call. There it is again. Thank you, Lazarus. We know what it looks like to have God call us. Let's go to Matthew 16. Start in verse 24. No, repentance is a beautiful thing. It's beautiful because it is a demonstration of going into life and away from death. Let's see what the mandate is that Jesus gives in order to be his disciples. Are you guys his disciples? Yes. Yes. I think I got both sides of the room. Are you guys his disciples? Yes. There we go. Even all the way around. 
Then Jesus said to his disciples, so he's saying this to you. If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for me will find it. Say life, life. from death. From death. You know, discipline can seem a little bit hard. But raise your hand if you're under the age of 18. Keep your hand raised if you just love discipline. I, yeah, I saw the arms you like I'm supposed to keep supposed it raised, to. but... You know, discipline is the means by which we find how to meet the right standard. And in doing so, we find life and we escape from death. The very things that are simple but yet complex and hard that Jesus gives for all of us of what does it take to actually be a disciple? It's to deny yourself. Say deny myself. Deny myself. Take up my cross. Take up my cross. And follow him. And follow him. In those three things, there is a promise that whoever loses his life for his sake will find it. Do you guys want to find life? Absolutely. Come on, I know it's Sunday morning, it's Easter. Coffee hasn't yet fully kicked in. You may need a whole nother 32 ounces of Starbucks goodness. But you know those times, and it may even be right now sitting in this room listening to our words, that this word repentance either doesn't really relate to you, you don't understand it, or you hate it because you feel like everywhere you go, things are, are the word of God is always condemning you. Well, if you have a guilty conscience, this is what's going to come up. That you're going to hate this word of repentance. But we are here today on this resurrection day to celebrate how life can come from death. How life can come from death. Amen. Amen. Well, it's not just a New Testament phenomenon that this exists. Everybody go to Ezekiel chapter 18. One thing that we love in our society is something that is new and that is improved, right? <laughs> this is a principle that has been long standing. In Ezekiel 18, starting in verse 30. Therefore, O house of Israel, I will judge you. Each one according to his ways, declares the sovereign Lord. Repent. Everybody say repent. repent. Turn away from all your offenses. The then sin will not be your downfall. Wow. I think something we can say universally for everyone in this room is that sin has been your downfall. And going back to that word about the grave clothes, there are things that you are carrying right now, not your actual garments that you're wearing on your, your body, but I mean the, the way that you're living, the attitude of your mind and heart is that you are still carrying around this downfall, this, the, the, the evidence and fruit of what sin has done in your life, your allowance of sin in your life. Let's pick up. Rid yourselves of all the offenses you have committed and get a new heart and a new spirit. Wow. Come on, say that with me. New heart. New heart. And a new spirit. And a new spirit. You know, the evidences of being born again and experiencing that transformational power of God and going from uh, death into life is that you have a new heart and a new spirit. Amen. And it's even better when your mama can testify that that is exactly what has happened. <laughs> Ain't that right, mom? All right. Good deal. <laughs> Why would you die, O house of Israel? For I take no pleasure in the death of anyone. Wow. declares the sovereign Lord, repent and live, repent and live. Wow. What God is after this whole time in demanding repentance from you is so that you can experience resurrection power that gives life. That's his goal the entire time. You feel the conviction of the Holy Ghost right now in this room. It is because God is trying to steer and drive you to his resurrection power that gives life. Let's go to Romans chapter 1. We hear churchy words. What I mean by churchy words is 
in our past, what we've grown up with that define religious ideals, right? So churchy words, sanctification, sanctify. We don't look at somebody and say, would you please go sanctify all the dishes in the sink? We say go wash, right? But we get in church, we say the Lord sanctified my heart. Well, we know exactly what it means and praise God, we love it when it happens. You know, when we hear the word gospel, there's a certain automatic response that we have to it, right? That it's this nice little cute paragraph statement about Jesus and you walk somebody through the Roman road of salvation and it's like an A plus B equals C. Well, repentance, as you can see, is such a strong foundation of what the gospel is to remove repentance out of the gospel is to have a gospel other than the one that Jesus preached. Wow. So Romans one sixteen. It's true. I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes. This gospel that Paul is speaking of right here is a gospel that is founded upon repentance. And when that gospel is founded upon repentance, what proceeds after that? Or what proceeds after that? Power. And not just power, power of God unto salvation. Come on, you, you know what I mean in, in those moments when something's not going right. So, let me get you all to participate a little bit. It's Resurrection Sunday. We're going to wake up. Who's ever been in a car wreck or in the near midst of a car wreck? Right. Don't you start repenting right before that car wreck happens? Jesus. Lord Jesus, I'm sorry for this. You try to get right with God in about two milliseconds. Right? I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God unto salvation. That what's happening right there in that car is that you are coming face to face with a reality that your life may end or be tragically altered in some way. And the first thing that leaps out of your spirit is to repent and begin to call in the name of Jesus. We have an obligation as believers who have experienced the transformational power of God. And that is to preach a gospel that is founded upon repentance And the very next verse is even more important, that this is first for the Jew and then for the Gentile. Turn with us to John chapter 20. We are not ashamed of the gospel. If you hear us speaking against other churches, that's not our point today. If you hear us speaking against other methodologies, not even what we're trying to get at. What we're trying to say is that we are not ashamed of the actual gospel because it is the power. If you actually have the gospel, then you will have power to overcome sin. If you don't have the power to overcome sin, then you need to evaluate whether you actually have the gospel. Did you hear in Exodus 18? Did you hear that verse? By the way, I'm going to make that one of my stones, my cards that I keep around. Because I've never put that as, as an... I didn't keep that very close to my mind and heart until we were studying this. I went, wait... The Lord doesn't want, he takes no pleasure in someone dying in their sin. He doesn't take pleasure in that. He wants you to repent and live. He's trying to get you to do that. But what happens if you do it some other way than what he's prescribed? You have not yielded to the gospel. Man, come on, we want you to have the power of the gospel at work. In John chapter 20, let's look at verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Wow. (laughs) We're not ashamed of the gospel. And what does that bring? That brings the entirety of the story that leads up to this. By the way, in the book of John, most of the book of John, from about chapter 13 through the end, takes place in the last few days of Jesus' life. If you want to get a pretty in-depth thing of what he said, of where he went, of what he did in the last few days he was alive, you read the second half of the book of John. And you find out about the Passover meal. That while he was there, he was talking about the Holy Spirit coming and being a comforter. He was praying for his people that they might be one. He was doing these things in here. And by chapter 20, we see that he's been crucified. He's been taken down from the cross. 
He's been wrapped in special clothing and put in the grave. Verse 10, then the disciples went back to their homes after realizing, hey, there was an empty tomb here. He was put there, but somebody must have come and taken him. Somebody must have stolen him. There must be something going on here. But Mary stood outside the tomb crying. Why wouldn't you stand outside the tomb crying? Your friend, the one that you had watched do miracles, the one that had radically transformed your life, and you thought he was now gone with no hope? As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb, a small little carved out place in a rock, and saw two angels in white where Jesus' body had been laid, one at the head and the other at the foot. Wow, what a beautiful picture. They asked her, so the angels are now talking to Mary, woman, why are you crying? (laughs) They have taken my Lord away. She said, and I don't know where they have put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there. But she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now don't get mad at her. You wouldn't have noticed it was him either. Anybody ever turned around in your life? You're lamenting something and Jesus presents himself to you and you turn around and you don't quite know that it's him? Maybe you come to a church service like today and Jesus is trying to present himself to you and as you turn around you're like, this is Jesus? This? What you guys are doing here? You're saying that this, yes. I'm saying that he's here to present himself to you. And look what happens. Jesus says, woman, why are you crying? Who is it that you're looking for? Man, I can't tell you how many times as a pastor I'm talking to somebody and I'm like, man, you are looking for something, aren't you? You're going to find it in pursuits, yeah, all kind of ways. You're going to go, you're the kind that will have, a, have nine college degrees and be a CEO and you're still looking for something. You're the kind that's looking for the party. Show me where the party is, man, because I'm looking for something. And maybe it's found right over there. Wherever, whatever end of the spectrum you are, you're still looking for something. You're still looking for someone. (laughs) Thinking he was the gardener. I love that. She said, sir, if you've carried him away, tell me where you've put him and I'll go get him. You know what she's doing there? Even though she doesn't see that it's Jesus, you know what she's expressing? Her heart to get this right. Man, I just want Jesus. I just want, I just want who he is. I'll do anything. I'll go anywhere. I'll I'll repent of anything that I need to because I need what he has. I need who he is. I can't do it by myself and I don't even want to try anymore. I'm at my lowest point. Can somebody help me? Just tell me what I need to do. Jesus said to her, Mary. He called her by name. May the Lord call you by name today. She turned toward him and cried out in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. She understood who he was when she heard the call and him call her name. Come on, that's, that's our prayer for every one of us in this place today. Death couldn't stop Jesus. He's talking to her in his risen form. Death couldn't stop him. A grave couldn't contain him. That's, where she, that's why she was crying. It's because there was an empty tomb. How do we think that the Lord of all creation can come into our life and it not produce a change? Or that the change would wear off? Come on, man. When he comes in, when he speaks your name, it changes everything about you. Pastor, are you saying, yeah, I'm saying you should evaluate your own stance with the Lord this morning. Why? Because when he comes in, if the grave can't stop him, if a tomb can't contain him, how is your little self going to keep him from shining forth in every area of your life? You know, our team is, uh, the last few days, sent us a video about a tomb. I'd like to just play you, it's about a one minute clip. supposed to be sound somewhere. So this is a, in Hebron. 
And Justin Treister is now pointing to... Uh, okay, we're just going to do it again with the so sound. So this is Justin at the Cave of Macpelia. And uh, if you look, these walls are huge. This is a big Herodian monstrosity. Uh, but where... Hey, Justin, point to the cave. Where Justin's pointing is the cave complex entrance that goes under that structure. And uh, to think that Abraham and Sarah and uh, Isaac, Rebecca, Jacob, and Leah uh, were all buried here. Uh, there's a complicated story about how they say their bones got into the structure that's above. But I also took a picture of first-hand accounts from the wars of 67 and 68 of, uh, of the Jewish soldiers' experience, and it's remarkable. All of us feel the presence of God here, too. It's strange. Not because of bones, but because of the hope of the resurrection and uh, the patriarchs with their children and seeing it in the land of Hebron, formerly the land of the Nephilim, who, of course, Joshua and Caleb took care of. Amen. There's an actual tomb that you can visit in Hebron. That is the, the tomb of the patriarchs. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, their wives, still full of the bones of some of the most incredible people that the Bible's ever recorded. And yet what we're asking you today is not to remember only a tomb of patriarchs, but remember an empty tomb of a, of, of a risen Savior. Amen. Their bones are still there. His are not there. He has become alive. He has brought life from death yes, yet once again because of the resurrection power. Come on, turn to Genesis. Genesis 37, verse 34. In light of the video that we just saw, the tomb of the patriarchs, where you have buried the bones of Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the wives. Let's look at Genesis 37. Then Jacob tore his clothes put on sackcloth and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and daughters came to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. No, he said, in mourning will I go down to the grave to my son. So his father wept for him. Mm. Meanwhile, the Midianites sold Joseph in Egypt to Potiphar, one of Pharaoh's officials, the captain of the guard. Jacob's heart was broken. In his mind, in his understanding, his son was dead. Never to see him ever again. Go to Genesis 45. Let's see here, within the story of Joseph, the gospel there. that has resurrection power. 45 verse 25. So they went up out of Egypt and came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan. They told him Joseph is still alive. In fact, he is ruler of all Egypt. Jacob was stunned. He did not believe them. But when they told him everything Joseph had said to them, and when he saw the carts Joseph had sent to carry him back, the spirit of their father Jacob revived. Saints, what's going to happen whenever the revelation of who Jesus is begins to dawn upon and be revealed to the nation of Israel. They are going to experience revival. Life from the dead. But how does it get to them? We're going to speak a little bit later about that. But I want you to keep that in mind. Go to Psalm 30. We were in the law, now we're moving to a writing. Psalm 30 verse 3. Oh, Lord, you brought me up from the grave. You spared me from going down into the pit. This is something that is seen throughout the entire Tanakh, the Older Testament, of going down to the pit and the Lord rescue them out of. Do you think that they would have in mind a certain hero of the faith, a patriarch found in Joseph, where his brothers had sold him and thrown him down or put him into a pit and then sold him to slaves? Where do you find yourself today? 
Are you in a pit of despair? Are you in a, a hole that your own sinful actions have dug for you? And sold into a slavery that you can't buy yourself out of. The good that you want to do, you cannot do. Do you need a redemption from a ruler and able to save you out of that condition? Yes, absolutely you do. Hosea 13, turn there. Say there when you're there. There. I will ransom them from the power of the grave. I will redeem them from death. Where, O death, are your plagues? Where, O grave, is your destruction? There is a message that has been spoken since the very early of times in Genesis. That death is going to be defeated. And the reason that we are standing right here today celebrating resurrection power is because Jesus has put an end to death and the grave. Amen. Your life now are, is able to carry that testimony. And when you live according to that resurrection power that's first preceded by repentance, you demonstrate and echo that same mes- message that we see being heralded here in Hosea 13. Go along with me. Let's go to Acts 2, verse 23. We're to exercise our thumbs this morning. Say there when you are there. Acts 2, 23. This man was handed over to you by God's set purpose and foreknowledge. And you, with the help of wicked men, put him to death by nailing him to the cross. But God raised him from the dead, freeing him from the agony of death because it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. Let me read that last part again. It was impossible for death to keep its hold on him. When we embed ourselves in Jesus or clothed with Christ or hidden inside of his name, it is impossible for death to keep its hold on us. You want to put to death your sinful nature? You want to quit doing that sinful thing over and over again? Throw your entire life into the name, the character, the body of work, and reputation of who Jesus is. And watch, that resurrection power will fill you, it will change you, it will transform you, and you will see life out of death. Colossians chapter 1, verse 18. And he is the head of the body, the church. He is the beginning and the firstborn from among the dead. So that in everything, say everything, Everything. he might have the supremacy. What right has his blood being shed, it being innocent, and then resurrection power, raising him from the grave, given him? Has given him the right to have supremacy in everything. So when you deny his lordship of your life, you are denying him the thing that he rightfully purchased and earned. Hmm. Brings me to a question. Are you experiencing the transforming power of God right now? Is that resurrection power overcoming, swallowing up, death at work within you. If you are experiencing the the following, you are experiencing transformational change. Correcting, rebuking, teaching, training in righteousness, hardships, trials of many kinds, suffering for his name, being unjustly persecuted because of your desire to live a godly life. That when you are transformed by the living God in his resurrection power, it then makes you a target for the devil and it is constantly driving out your sinful nature and brings you to encountering these very things. Leads us to another point of being baptized in the Holy Ghost. You know, after I was transformed in my bedroom at the age of 16, became a completely new creation and experienced that resurrection power. 
about a year and a half later, I begin to crave and say, there's something more in Jesus than what I'm getting. I did not know about the infilling of his spirit with the result of speaking in tongues and having access to the entire nine gifts of the Holy Spirit to see the book of Acts lived out right in front of me. As I began to hunger and thirst for this, God began to open up relationships and abilities for people to tell me what I was missing in the word. And the whole point that God was after was that not only I experienced a transformational change in being born again, but then I would be empowered by the baptism of the Holy Ghost to go and be his witnesses. That I and you have the ability to carry on our shoulders the name of Jesus, but also the same resurrection power of God in everything that we do. And that's going to cause a certain response from other people. Amen. As we get ready to close here today, this is the time where you get to decide if you're going to do it the way that you want or we're going to yield to what the Lord has prescribed for us. If we're going to actually repent and be changed. If only people in our area, if only people in our around us could understand that this is what they're looking for. If only you here today. There are people here who need the Lord. Every one of us needs the Lord. There are people in this place who need to repent of going their own way, finding their own direction. Maybe even you said a prayer when you were young, but you have not lived in an overcoming. You do not have the resurrection power at work in your life. The things that you don't want to do, you continue to do because there's no power to overcome it. So we run and hide inside of religion. We're not asking you to run and hide inside of religion. Today we're going to ask, we're going to give you an opportunity to see if the Lord is actually calling your name and see if you'll respond to that. Would you stand with me now together?